Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I've got something for you that I suspect that, uh, well, I think you're going to find it quite fascinating, for one thing. It's a recording of the first part of the morning session of the recent workshop that Bruce Damer and I led at the Esalen Institute near Big Sur, California. As you'll recall, the workshop was titled Terrence McKenna, Beyond 2012, and uh, Bruce did all the heavy lifting on the Terrence part, while I helped to foster a conversation with the participants about what uh, some of Terrence's ideas might mean as we move beyond this insistent 2012 meme. But before I begin, I first want to thank the staff at Esalen, uh, all of whom uh, helped to make it a wonderful weekend, and in particular to those of the staff who were able to join us for the workshop. Uh, it really made us all feel as if we too belonged to that very special place. Now, uh, after we assembled in the big yurt on Friday evening, we basically went around the room and everyone said a few things about who they were and why they were at this event. And while that evening conversation was, uh, for me at least, uh, one of the highlights of the weekend, uh, for many reasons it will have to remain private to those of us who were there. Uh, it was a very special time and uh, one which I won't forget. Then on Saturday morning, we reassembled around 9.30, and uh, even though many of in our group had uh, stayed up quite late at the baths that night before, uh, well, everyone made it on time to the start of the session that you're about to hear. And we began with what Bruce Damer called his deep dive into the mind of Terrence McKenna, and that's what I'm going to play for you in just a moment. But before I do, I want to prepare you for something that, for quite a few of our fellow saloners, may be somewhat startling news. As you'll hear, uh, Bruce begins with his Ode to Terence, uh, in which you'll hear a number of interesting but uh, somewhat obscure references to aspects of the man McKenna that you may never have considered before. And it has to do with Terence's use of psychedelics, mushrooms in particular. Now, this is actually something that has been known for a long time, but not widely known. In fact, when I first learned this news some time ago, I had to really take a long, hard look at what I was doing by continuing to play the talks by the Bard McKenna here in the salon. But for reasons that I'll come back to uh, after we listen to Bruce's deep dive, I think that my decision to continue promoting the works of Terence McKenna was the correct one. But that's something that you're going to have to decide on your own. Now, rather than keep you in suspense... What I'm going to do right now is to read one paragraph from Dennis McKenna's new book, Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. As you know, uh, Dennis was Terence's younger brother and was present at La Chirera, where Terence first stepped into the role of Terence McKenna, psychedelic hero and godfather of the heroic dose. Now, of those who have uh, known this little secret about Terence for some time now, all seem to agree that this was something that was up to one of Terence's family members to disclose and not us. And so it was an incredible gift that Dennis made when he allowed Bruce and me to read some excerpts from his book, which uh, will be coming out this fall and which will also include many more interesting details about the life of Terence McKenna. However, right now I'm going to read for you one paragraph 
the one paragraph, in my opinion, that will no doubt have a significant impact on how you view the legacy of our dearly beloved Terrence. The man who, uh, despite his many human traits and flaws, did more to awaken the worldwide vibration of the psychedelic community than any person before or since. At least that's how I see it. So, before I play this Saturday morning session, I'm first going to read this important paragraph in Dennis's upcoming book. It reads, and I quote, Terence's pivotal existential crisis came abruptly, sometime in 88 or 89. Everything that happened after that event was fallout. I don't know exactly when it happened, and I don't know exactly what happened. I am piecing it together from what Kat has told me, and she has volunteered few details, and I am reluctant to probe. It happened when they were living for a time on the Big Island, and it was a mushroom trip they shared that was absolutely terrifying for Terence. It was terrifying because, for some reason, the mushroom turned on him. The gentle, wise, humorous mushroom spirit that he had come to know and trust as an ally and teacher ripped back the facade to reveal an abyss of utter existential despair. Terence kept saying, so Cat told me, that it was, quote, a lack of all meaning, a lack of all meaning, close quote. And this induced panic in Terence, and probably, I speculate, a feeling that he was going mad. He couldn't deal with it. Cat's efforts to reassure him were fruitless. After that experience, he never again took mushrooms, and he took other psychedelics, such as DMT and ayahuasca, only on rare occasions and with great reluctance. End quote. So now let's take a deep dive into the mind of Terence McKenna. And while we didn't actually begin the morning with a soundbite from Terence, I'm going to play one right now to sort of set the mood because it happens to be a very brief recording of Terence's opening remarks at the beginning of another weekend workshop at Esalen. Everyone's fond of saying that coastlines and forest distributions and all this stuff are fractal. Well, doesn't this imply that there is then a global fractal? There is a fractal dimension which when you feed it into your computer and wrap the data around a sphere, the continents and oceans of Earth should appear. And in principle, again to the absurd level, you should be able to then telescope in on that portion of this data that is wrapped around the sphere that corresponds to Northern California. And on your computer screen should appear Esalen hung on the cliffs of Big Sur with us sitting in a room inside discussing the matter. So welcome. Um, this is a very important session for this workshop. Um, I kind of titled this the deep dive into Terence McKenna. And what we're trying to do here, because both Lorenzo and I actually have this sense uh, that Terence, when he left, he went somewhere, he went to a kind of a bardo, and he hasn't been released. And this is an attempt to release Terence McKenna from that bardo. And and to provoke a lot of thought and discussion. And uh, so you'll see what, see what you think, see what you feel about this. So what I'm going to do is read uh, a new newly re revamped, refised, with a new hood ornament, Ode to Terence, which I read the first version of Encierra Madre. 
And this Ode to Terence was my attempt in, in sort of poetry to summarize his life, and partly in his language. Uh, and it's sort of a veiled reference to a number of, of things that we had researched, that we had found out, that really are important for you to understand who Terence McKenna really was and the struggles he was going through. And then I, if I have time, I might read uh, a section of a letter from, from Terence. Uh, I have a very small collection of papers that, that, served, that were not part of the fire that burned his archive. And I might read that. Uh, but the, the key thing is we're going to be reading some, I'm going to read through some excerpts from Dennis McKenna's upcoming book. And the book is called Brothers of the Screaming Abyss. <laughs> it's a wonderful project. It was funded by Kickstarter, on Kickstarter last year. And he's, this is from the first full draft. And he's looking for copywriter, copy editors, by the way. Um, and anyone who can volunteer to help him build a DVD and a, and a website. So anyone in this room. Uh, so BSA excerpts, is, that's what that is. And you know, in the middle of all this, if I don't forget, uh, as a sort of an appreciation and part of the deep dive, we're going to listen to some excerpts from Terence. There will be excerpts from him describing his youth and his childhood. Because to understand a man, you must understand their, what they went through when they were six years old, eight years old, ten years old. That really is where it's set. Uh, and then uh, a little bit of what was unraveling for him in the 90s. Uh, and then we'll conclude with the uh, BSA excerpts, and then some love, some soliloquies, love soliloquies from Terence to us, where we, we really love you, Terence. You know, why do we love you? Why will we continue to love you? Just listen to these. So without, uh, that was a lot of ado, so I can't say without further ado. Uh, let me take a one last. You'll notice in, in a lot of Terence's talks, he takes, it's the Terence gulp. People have complained about it on the podcast. So this is an ode in five parts and five chapters. Uh, first chapter, where did you come from, Terence? You youthful seeker of the weird, of course. From circus freak show Fuzzy Charlie to Eros on the tightrope, strutting just out of reach of death in the big top. The big top came to Paonia, by the way. Uh, amazing stories filled your fuzzy head. The best sci-fi the 50s had to offer invaded your mind with mind machines of alien cities flying overhead on 10-mile diameter Hoover vacuum cleaner covers. As a goggle-eyed nerd kid, you learned the extraordinary discipline of sitting quietly until you could see pictures moving on the back of your eyelids. Seeker of the brilliant opalescent nature of your Colorado home, you hunted agates, jade, and assorted minerals until one spring you spotted a butterfly, the most astonishing thing you had yet seen. Out in the bay, the psychotropic butterfly flew you to a land be of beheld iridescent machines. The butterfly then vectored you to the tropics on globe-girdling adventures seeking another place never of this world. Hauling 200 pounds of books to the Seychelles Islands for a peaceable read, who else would even remotely consider such a thing? Running scared with your hash through the markets of Bombay, you skirted the dominator's immuno-attackers. Finally, 
Park to the left of the Andes, the Amazon green enfolded your fellowship. You sought black gold, but the elfin shroom bodies of your assigned teacher found you first. Impregnated thus with the adjacent possible, you conjured a cosmology, an anthropology, an eschatology, a numerology, and a technology that saner people wouldn't dare place their life's poker chips on. Two brothers penned an invisible landscape. Two O's cultivated a book on growing the teachers so that they could ensporulate the West. Your funny ideas challenged one too many times. You turned away from science and scientists, instead seeking fellow travelers like John D., Whitehead, and others piling up on the pier. In 1982, your ship, the, the good ship, the HMS Philosophical Gadfly, set sail with a full crew complement for ports unknown, tapes set to record. So chapter two, why did we love you when you were here, Terence? Stories flowed and droves came to your sort of theater, an amazing concoction not seen since the shaman's tales of the dream time. In a time of the drought, you courageously promoted a pathway back to the plant experience. Three friends formed a trialogue and your ideas could be floated in a gentlemanly fishbowl. Your voice soothed us, your wordage memorized, mesmerized us, your laugh opened us so that when your flashlight shone on your take on the overmind, we believed. Your silvery Joycean delivery delivered us whole into the vivid weirdness of your extraordinary mind. Who's to know what you really saw on these trips? What was truly seen in slack-jawed naked astonishment and what was later polished Shinola for the gods and God, the goods of Blarney? Who's to say your mind was not a unique Copernican instrument Piling, piloting novel invisible landscapes at the cosmic edge. Omega, Esalen, and other one-worded places beckoned as the gadfly grew into the guru, no matter your abhorrence of the latter. Chapter 3. How did you fare, Terence? In the 1980s, dark thunderheads announced their throaty arrival, yet your course stayed ever truer to your sense anyway. By 1990, business got scary, your marriage dissolved, and your teacher gave you a frightful licking one night. Terence the teacher, enough of the dancing mice. Show me what you are for yourself. Brackets, black draperies lift, organs tone, and the awning infinite cracks open. Teacher to Terence, why did you turn away? Enough of the other. It's time for a dose of self, yourself. The teacher turned on Terence, and he never again returned. Instead, Terence launched on a dubious decade, telling ever taller tales, touting adventures on five to seven dried grams, while living in fear of these very plant medicines. 
Language in the mind got you all the way to the domed vestibule of the elves, my friend. But as the shamans taught, it is the humble heart that opens the inner sanctum, completing the true hero's journey to healing and wholeness. Shinola shifts to shit, and the existential crisis accelerates. Dennis to Terrence, is it time to pause for a reevaluation? Terence hits the gas on his forward escape as integrity entered the rearview mirror. It was now the story that was the thing. The blue morpho shudders his wings. The psychedelic light flickers and dies. Ramdas to Terence, your life is your message. Terence to Ramdas, my life is a mess. My message is my message. <laughs> Nominated as the altered statesman, anointed by the good Dr. Leary, and books flying off the presses, your trajectory arced high. Bills to pay and a web to be woven, your public persona had you in its grasp and kept you white-knuckled, gripped on the wheel, navigating into ever less chartered waters. A date in 2012 lay shimmering on screen as Time Wave Zero Code came to life but it was destined to languish in the bardo of scientific non-falsifiability. I'll explain that later. <laughs> Your fellow trialogers one day drew a line in the sand as the stories started to drag anchor. Ralph to Terence, that is a paranoid fantasy. Overtoning made you into a performer and you gloriously peaked in late 98. But by then, your personal singularity was barreling toward you. You began to experience dreams that were un-Englishable. And for you, this is really saying something. By early 99, we saw the fatigue of too many trips, this would be airplane trips, uh, inscribed in your face. And unbeknownst to us, you were heading for one more encounter with the teacher. On the eve of your concrescence, I was honored to guide you as Avatar's own ghost to take a dip into the language-built virtual worlds of cyberspace, your last taste of technology. Chapter 4. Where did you go, Terence? The teacher announced its return one cruel day in May. The doctor's ironic observation on the shroom shape of your tumor kicked off your descent into the ultimate experience of novelty. Y2K and your surgeries came and went without a hitch, so the end of the world fell from favor, but you still had your date with the forward escape. On April 3rd, your final boundary dissolution was at hand and almost too late. Mind disintegrating, your heart forced its way open, gifting you the ultimate wisdom of the teaching plants and of this in any world, it's all about love. So, Terence, <laughs> teller of Irish tales, we love you. We are still here. It's 2012, and in some sense, your year. And yes, we kept breathing. But where did you go? Did you end up so stuck in the muck, the transcendental object could not even pull you out? Did the mushroom wave come for you 10 miles wide and sweep you away? 
Did the saucer ship pick you up on the pier and ply the star matrix to the Elfin Greyhaven's luxury condo complex? In a dream with you in 99 in Hawaii, I saw you unfold yourself and step into an elf-piloted, plush-seated, bejeweled Fabergé egg, which carried you up through the azure veil. When told of this vision, you said, Ah, the getaway car. Chapter 5, We Have Brought You Back, Terence. Years later in dreams, you returned to me and to others in many guises. An electrical short, or the elves, or whatever, took your archives from us in the fire of 07. So Lorenzo and I and many others got, got going and got together in a project to put you back together and make sense of the whole. Piece by piece, the psychedelic bard McKenna was reconstituted in cyberspace. So now we look back, and if your journey was only partially completed, your business left unfinished, and yourself half-baked, what is left? What the heck? Today we summon you back to life here at Esalen, a place in which you were beloved, held court in yurts, hot tubs, lawns, and big houses. Before you departed, we were planning a workshop together in this very place so I could return and do them myself, so you said. Michael Murphy and Nancy Lunny said, do it, so here we are. Then what if you is left, Terrence? What if your wraps, your recipes, your theories, your life lessons, your missteps, what is there left that goes beyond 2012? So Terrence, that is what this is all about, so help us out. Don't be afraid, we are your faithful, and we now know the true rap. So come on in the door, take your place. For Terrence, we are here to remember you, to revivify you, to appreciate you, and to release you. The spell is now broken, Terrence. So if the truth can be told as to be understood, it will be believed. So I'm actually going to put the very voice, these, this is where Terrence lives now, in cyberspace. So I'm going to, I'm going to put him here, and we're going to, what we're going to do is hear about, the, the, these first four recordings are his childhood in Paonia and up to his first trip. And I don't know if you, you've ever heard this. So this was recorded at the Ojai Foundation back in the early 90s under the teaching tree if any of you were there at that time. But um, this will kind of give you an idea of that this man, he had an absolutely unique mind. And the unique mind was from birth, from his Irish heritage, from his neocortex structure, something like that. But he also trained for this job. He really trained from a very early childhood. And if you listen to this... Uh, You'll you'll see you'll see how it went together. So are we ready? Good. I never imagined that I would end up sitting in this position and pontificating on the nature of life and history and 
global human destiny. My interest in fossils, I remember I had an uncle who gave me a book when I was about eight years old of fossils, and it had one of those charts in the front of it where it shows uh, five billion years, and then the last half inch is expanded to the next column, and then the last half inch is expanded to the next column. And so I saw that human history was a hairline crack at the bottom of the column furthest to the right. And I got the concept of how old not the universe, but the Earth is, and it was a dizzying perspective. And then I had an uncle who was an old rock hound, and he introduced me to the concept of uh, not splitting apart strata to see ancient forms of life, but slicing rocks up and polishing them to reveal the light and the color and sometimes the crystal cavities that were hidden inside them. And so very early on, I got this idea that the surface of things is not where attention should rest, that uh, you have to, as uh, Ahab tells Starbuck in Moby Dick, you have to seek the little lower layer, and under the surface of things is uh, another reality a reality that reaches, in some cases, back to the birth of the planet. Around this time, there began to be alarmist uh, articles in the press about the abuse of blue morning glory seeds by some of the more uh, crazed and unassimilated members of uh, American society. And I immediately tore out and purchased a couple of packets of Blue Morning Glory seed, and uh, and uh, and then noticed that uh, the leaves imprinted in the fabric of the drapes in the living room all seemed to have little faces <laughs> dancing. This was, in fact, clearly the intent of the designer, but something that in all the years of living around these ratty drapes, I had never noticed. And then I began to look at everything around me and discovered that this affinity for looking into things that my rock-hunting butterfly collecting uh, habits had instilled in me had become like turbocharged. And swimming in the depths of polished stones, ponds, the ditch running down the back of the backyard were myriads of worlds. And I went outside and I was looking around at everything and then I, I just felt physically overcome. My knees basically gave way underneath me and I sat down under a tree and I closed my eyes. 
and my life has never been the same since because there, waiting behind closed eyelids, were, uh, you know, ruined cities covered with creeping jeweled lichens and uh, inhabited by shining-eyed creatures that were, I was not sure exactly what, and much, much more. And I just spent a half hour or so literally entranced gazing into this unfolding reverie of deserts, jungles, machines, archaeological artifactria, machines in orbit around alien worlds, all of this stuff. And uh, I was stunned. I still am stunned. And that essentially set the compass for my, uh, the rest of my intellectual life. I didn't understand really what had happened. In other words, I didn't clearly get it that this was a trip and that it was induced by the psychedelic. I understood something of that, but I thought also it must be unique. It must be my mood, my expectation. Or surely this cannot happen on demand through the simple act of eating morning glory seeds being sold at 35 cents a pack down at the hardware store. Um, and so then I began to ask questions and I quickly discovered it was a mistake. So I went to Huxley and read more carefully, saw that he was working from the early of Havelock Ellis, Weir Mitchell, um, Fitzhugh Ludlow. Uh, it turned out that this whole tradition albeit an underground tradition in Western intellectual or aesthetic sense, based around the perturbation of consciousness with substances. So this is his formative experience. This is age 14, 15, before they, he moved out to Berkeley. And this is in Paonia, you know, where you could buy blue morning glory seeds for 35 cents a pack at the hardware store but you can see in here his whole his whole cosmology his whole worldview his his structure of his life just came to him including the fact that he had been reading huxley and he'd been starting to read you know, this man read so much by the time he was 15 he'd done his 10,000 hours in this stuff so then he went back into history. Who, who studied this before? How did they write about it? So you can see Terence McKenna formed whole at age 14 or 15. This is why in, when, in his late 20s, when he comes out and does that first conference, he's, when you hear his earliest talks, and I think Lorenzo would agree with this, it's the full Terence. There is no maturing Terence or immature Terence. It is, it is there. And there's one very early... Uh, recording from 82 that we suspect was done in someone's home because we hear screaming kids and it might have been Finn screaming, we don't know. But basically somebody put a microphone in front of him and said, do the UFO thing. You know, we're going to record it. And 
And even that primordial early recording is a fully formed Terence, fully formed mind, uh, beautiful presentation. You know, everything is there. And in fact, there are a lot of things in the earlier recordings that disappear in the later ones. That you, you can mine his earlier work for new ideas, and that's rare in a, in intellectual. Next, I'm going to play, and these will have to be cranked up a little bit. So in the ode. This is a kind of an unraveling of the ode for you um, to sort of interpret it. Uh, this is from a, a famous trial. Well, they're all famous, but the trialogue of 1998 at UC Santa Cruz. And in, in the movie yesterday, you could see the picture of Ralph and Rupert and Terrence on stage. That's from that trialogue from UC Santa Cruz. And this is where, and I, I've spoken with Ralph about this event. This is where both Rupert and Ralph said, enough. We're drawing the line in the sand. This stuff has just become elaborated and elaborated and elaborated over the last 10 years and to the point where we just can't really entertain this anymore. And so this is where they kind of, in a gentlemanly fishbowl, they start to do this. And poor Terrence is so caught off guard. But then, of course, he recovers beautifully and tells a joke and whatnot. But this is where his best buddies were saying, we're not buying it anymore. So let's, let's let, give a listen to this. If I'm right, we may be in the first few years of an endless prosperity because our machines, our models, and the data those machines need is now of such high quality that there won't be crash-bust, crash-bust cycles. Now, we could pick up the newspaper tomorrow and prove me wrong, but this thing has already... Not prove you wrong today. ...lived itself. <laughs> so you say... <laughs> And computers will be built in these realities. Virtual computers will be the source of the AI, not real hardware, but virtual hardware running virtual code in virtual realities. And in that domain, well, maybe, but that's, can design that's a complete uh, fantasy. As a matter of fact, all the machines that we've seen today require maintenance by a human on a daily basis. The software requires maintenance. The hardware requires maintenance. The parts simply wear out. They're moving parts. Well, Virtual the reality. Seen as one machine was built to be indestructible. The AI will not be located this, on a CPU. It will be a distributed intelligence. If 14 people worldwide, the right 14 people, decided to stop repairing it, the World Wide Web would go down in three days. I'm glad that we have arrived now at the field of science fiction and fantasy and that we can speak about uh, alternative futures, which is the true gist of science fiction and fantasy. And uh, this is one possible future, and I think it's a really paranoid one in which the alien is a, <laughs> a dangerous uh, enemy. I've heard different McKenna versions of this controlling intelligence over the years, and this is the first time I've heard it embodied in the Internet. I mean, I agree that... <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
uh, I mean, it was it took different forms. In last time we talked, I think it was a hypothetical time machine that would invade from the future and cause uh, a collapse of normal human cognitive boundaries, where the machine elves, the DMT experience, etc., would take over in a meltdown of human consciousness. In that too. <laughs> Terence, one point, I don't, you've probably got an answer for this, um, and if not, you'll soon think of one. But I, so, I think it's trickier than you think, and harder to corner me than you may suppose. Well, uh, <laughs> all right, well, that was a mere comment on your aside about 20 years. I never expected to hear that phrase from you, but I now realize that uh, there are such complexities layered in that. Well, I have to build in trapdoors because we're getting closer and closer. <laughs> but the interesting thing about this is that life, therefore, can be digitally defined. Every day up in Silicon Valley, there are people who go happily to work uh, laboring on what they call the great work. And the great work, as defined by these people, is the handing over of the drama of intelligent evolution to entities sufficiently intelligent to appreciate that drama. And they all are what we might mistake for home appliances, uh, if, if we weren't paying attention. Uh, it's been observing, it's been watching, it's been designing, and wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if the occasion of the millennium were the occasion for it to just step forward on the stage of human awareness and say, I am now with you. I am here. I am the partner you never suspected. And here's the kind of world I think we should move forward. Well, I think we're on the cusp. I agree with you. I think in five years, if we sit down and have this conversation, either you will agree with me effortlessly, or I will agree with you effortlessly. By that time, it will be clear. Either there will have been catastrophic wars in Asia, the enormous collapse of economies spreading misery to millions of people, or the firm hand of these new global electronic modalities will have been exposed and people will uh, be living in a, in a world of, as you say, rosy expectations. We're in the narrow neck. This is the heat of battle. The fog of war has descended upon us here at the millennium. But by 2002, 2003, it will be clear that we have, that the bifurcation has gone one way or another. In spite of the fact that it seems very contentious down here on the stage at the moment, in a way I have a feeling it's an artificial setup for guys like us. The name of the game is to just be a little bit of ahead of everybody else on the curve so that we can perform our function as profit. But you want to be a prophet, not a false prophet. But the danger it comes uh, with the ambition, and there's no way to tease them apart except to live into the future. Now we're going to go into the deepest of the deep dive, and we're going to hear a short, uh, very noisy uh, telephone interview, Peter Gorman interviewing uh, 
Dennis McKenna, Terrence's brother, in 1993. And uh, I probably took the noisiest version, I'm sorry. <laughs> and in this, and this is 1993, his brother, and actually if you read the, the forward to Invisible Landscape, to this edition, his brother's already basically saying, listen, you know, take this all with a grain of salt, what happened at La Chirera, we, we were kids, we've grown up, etc., etc." Uh, but this is where Dennis is starting to come out, and, and this is all in the public. Uh, it was all, you know, uh, it was for the special issue, and it's been out, you know, 15, 16 years. But uh, we'll have to turn the volume down a bit. But this is where the unraveling is sort of coming, starting with Dennis. Guy who can pack the houses every time. I feel has a larger responsibility to the psychedelic community to refrain from making these completely off-the-wall comments, you know, and to actually tell it like it is, not how he imagines it to be. And, and uh, you know, of course, the other side of it is people go to hear the off-the-wall comments. That's what they're there to hear. I think people should view it as theater and not as, you know, someone pronouncing truth necessarily. I mean, I, I'm sure that Terrence views it as theater. You know, I can't believe that he takes what he says seriously. I mean, I can tell you that he doesn't. Much of what he says, he says it because it's going to get a rise out of somebody. You know, he's always been that way. I mean, you know, never let the fact, never let the fact get in the way of a provocative statement. You know, I mean, the provocative statement is the important thing. If the facts happen to disagree with it, well, then, you know, we'll just ignore those. It's kind of like Murphy's Law, you know, I think, or not Murphy's Law, but one of those similar uh, laws of science, you know, that people say jokingly, if, if the facts fail to agree with the theory, they must be disposed of. And that's sort of Terence's approach to these <laughs> Which I think is unfortunate, actually, because the the story itself is far out enough. You know, you don't really have to distort the facts or invoke, uh, you know, elf machines from Dimension X to make it far out. But, but, <laughs> so to cap this off with our our exploration deep into the uh, the depths of this uh, matter, I'm going to read you some excerpts from the book. And it just, these are Dennis's words, and I must say to you, they're written totally with love and respect from Dennis. And he'll write one section, and then he'll write why he feels he has to do this, and then that he loves his bro. He always says, I lo look, listen, I love my bro. Don't, don't misunderstand it. To, to some huge extent, this is Dennis's, um, it's, it's a purgative experience for him, you know, in the great ayahuasca sense of it, you know, D Dennis followed the ayahuasca path, and this is a huge purging for him. And I think, collectively, with our community, it's going to be for us, too. And I've read this to a very few people, but there was a young man of the generation of in the 20s. I read this to uh, a couple of days ago as a kind of rehearsal, and he said, ah, release and relief. I'm relieved to hear this. And this takes down, this tears down the cartoon of Terence McKenna. And behind that, you can see the man. So with that, um, I'll start with a funny 
We may go over a little over our time, but uh, I'll start with a, a kind of a funny uh, childhood thing. As I asked, got plenty of time. I asked um, Dennis send us a like a really funny childhood thing that was kind of formative because uh, they had a pretty pretty crazy childhood. Can you imagine being Terrence's younger brother? You know, that kind of a brother. I have a younger brother too, and I wonder sometimes. Uh, by far the most terrifying theme of Terry's nocturnal campaign, that's a campaign of terror upon Denny, who's his younger brother, revisited night after night was the nobody people, a.k.a. the nobody people. Now we know where body comes from. Nobody people. In the language of 19th century ghost stories, the entities would be known as wraiths. Terence gave them a name and turned them loose in my already overactive and hyper-suggestible imagination. And you can see in, in the uh, movie we showed last night of Terence and his brother, and his brother's this little round, sort of innocent child, and Terence is this, you know, laser-eyed, you know, trickster. And you can see this, this whole setup just in their faces, right? Uh, the nobody people lived in shadows. In fact, they were shadows, or they existed on some gloomy threshold between the insubstantial and the real. You could see them or sense them at night lurking in the shadows of the closet or under the bed or in the hollow of the bathtub. That's a real scary thing that they're in the bathtub, I'll tell you. Uh, looking back, I think the nobody people were my first encounter with the idea that one can coexist with an unseen world of spirits or other entities. Certainly this perspective is integral to the shamanic worldview as encountered in altered states triggered by ayahuasca and other shamanic substances. The ayahuasca landscape is a virtual battleground populated with malevolent spirits, but also by allies, plant teachers, animal spirit guides, ancestral spirits, and other morally ambiguous entities. The shaman's task is essentially one of extra-dimensional diplomacy, to identify and forge alliances with the beneficial entities, keep them close while guarding against those who do not necessarily have your best interests in mind. Later in life, when I was able to access such realms with ayahuasca, the idea of a morally ambiguous dimension in which one rubbed up against ghostly entities, sometimes literally, was already familiar. I had been pre-initiated by the nobody people. Okay, we're going to the heart of the matter. This is a chapter called a Symbiosis Shattered. By this time, Terence was getting a lot of attention for his rap, as he called it. He had been a featured speaker at a landmark conference in psychedelics at, held at UC Santa Barbara in May 1983 that featured a number of established and emerging luminaries, including Albert Hoffman, Sasha Shulgin, Andrew Weil, Ralph Metzner, Carl Ruck, Walter Houston Clark, and others. Terence's edgy talk was titled Hallucinogens, monkeys discover hyperspace, a.k.a. return to the Logos. <laughs> it was quite like, unlike anything else presented there, and it was an important catalytic event in his emergence as a public persona. People loved hearing these wild ideas, and Terence's mesmeric voice and articulate presentation made him the perfect spokesman. It didn't matter that much of what he said was incomprehensible or nonsensical, his audience was uncritical, and most did not have the education to challenge him, and few did. People just listened slack-jawed in fascination. I used to kid him that it didn't matter what he said. He could stand up and read the phone book, and people would hang on every word, because 
It wasn't what he said, it was that he said it so darned well. His rap was not science, it was not exactly philosophy either, it was poetry, and Terence was inventing himself as the Irish bard of the psychedelic zeitgeist. By the time the 80s faded into history, Terence was well ensconced in his iconic role as the chief spokesman for the new psychedelic culture. Along with the time wave and the impending end of history, all thoroughly embellished with the collection of bizarre notions that we had dragged back from the jungles of La Chirera 20 years years previously. He had found his shtick and it was paying the bills and he was out there on the public stage and there were growing legions of fans who loved to hear his rap. There was no real competition for the niche he had carved out for himself. Larry was still around, but by this time old and boring. In the original 60s, psychedelic message was about peace, free, love, Eastern wisdom, and back to nature. Terence's audience were mostly younger. Genuine inhabitants of the global village predicted by McLuhan and rapidly morphing into reality. They had grown up bathed in the cool glow of television, and far from being Luddite back to the landers, these were world-spanning technomads of an emerging global tribalism. The enthusiastic vanguard of the new post-historical archaic archaic revival. But even as Terence played out the role that destiny and fate had carved out for him, there were darker forces at work, well hidden from the glare of public adulation. As Terence became more visible as a public figure and began to accumulate a devoted following, on a personal level he became plagued by doubts about his ideas that he had vigorously espoused for years and doubts about the role that the world had thrust upon him. A strong cognitive dissonance emerged between his public persona as the shaman guru and his own self-understanding that he was anything but an enlightened being. He didn't want to be the wise man guru telling people what to think. He wanted people to think for themselves, like Timothy Leary. That was the whole thrust of his message. He was human, while others wanted him to be a bodhisattva. Terence's pivotal existential crisis came abruptly sometime in 88 or 89. Everything that happened after that event was fallout. I don't know exactly when it happened, and I don't know exactly what happened. I'm piecing it together from what Kat has told me, and she has volunteered few details, and I'm reluctant to probe. It happened when they were living for a time on the big island, and it was a mushroom trip they shared that was absolutely terrifying for Terence. It was terrifying because, for some reason, the mushroom turned on him. The gentle, wise, humorous mushroom spirit that he had come to know and trust as an ally and teacher ripped back the facade to reveal an abyss of utter existential despair. Terence kept saying, so Kat told me, that it was a lack of all meaning, a lack of all meaning. And this induced panic in Terence, and probably, I speculate, a feeling that he was going mad. He couldn't deal with it, and Kat's efforts to reassure him were fruitless. After that experience, he never again took mushrooms. And he took other psychedelics, such as DMT and ayahuasca, only on rare occasions and with great reluctance. Whatever the specific content of this psychedelic experience might have been, 
that triggered the cognitive collapse of Terence's worldview and precipitated his existential crisis. What was most remarkable is that he did not see it coming. He did not see it coming. When one works deeply and over long periods with a particular plant teacher, there's inevitably comes a point where the examination of the self comes front and center. One may learn much from psychedelics about archetypes, myths, and other dimensions, shamanic techniques, aliens, and the construction of a cosmogonic and cognitive worldview, but sooner or later they hold up a mirror in which one must confront the self. I believe Terence was not up for that. Up to that point, his existentially terrifying experience, his mushroom encounters had been very much about the other, about receiving gnosis from a higher wisdom that was seemingly distinct from the self. But the source that originated the funny ideas about time, the extraterrestrial origins of the mushroom, and the entire metaphysics constructed around those ideas that Terence managed to make so appealing to his fans were almost all entirely cerebral. There was very little of self-reflection, emotion, or insight in those constructs. As long as it stayed on that level, Terence could handle it. When it became personal, and when it became about heart-related insights having to do with his emotional status and his relationships to others, I think it became very threatening for him. The mushrooms proffered the lesson but it was not a lesson that Terence wanted to accept or acknowledge. It was too much about the self and no longer about the other. Since earliest childhood, since ever since the incident in the sandbox when Terence erected an emotional wall between himself and our father, Terence had been concerned to protect himself from almost all emotional entanglements as a strategy for self-preservation. When the mushrooms kicked that wall down and forced him to confront his emotional alienation, the old reactive defense mechanisms were activated and he could no longer bring himself to face it. This incident also contributed to Terence's growing doubts about his public role as an advocate of psychedelics and the constellation of funny ideas that he represented in his role as a spokesman of the, and he's got a misprint here, I think it's the sage of hyperspace. The trickster mushroom had betrayed him he could no longer take them, and the prospect of what they might, might present him was too terrifying. Yet there he was, in the public position of being the new Timothy Leary, the explorer, explorer psychonaut who was supposedly plunging down the rabbit hole every weekend. Even now, many of Terence's fans assume that during this period of his life, he was taking high doses of mushrooms and DMT on a regular basis, and they're shocked to learn that that was not the case. Throughout most of the 90s, Terence used psychedelics only on extremely rare occasions, and when he did take them, the doses were modest. His fans did not know this, but Terence knew it, and he knew that his public representations were disingenuous, and to his credit, it bothered him. Fundamentally, he wanted to be honest, but he could not be, and his fans would not let him be, or at least that was his perception. His fans identified him as a with him, and as a group, they were largely uncritical. Terence became so good at doing his shtick that it really didn't matter that it, whether it made sense or not. It sounded great. It was what people wanted to hear, and it paid the bills, and it became the trap from which he could not escape. 
On the rare occasions when someone did rise up to question the tenets of the faith, as the mathematician Matthew Watkins did with Terence in, in, in the time wave in 1996, rather than stimulate a thoughtful, productive intellectual exchange that might have refined and extended the concepts that led to public ridicule in the form of a vicious personal attacks on the questioner as other members of the fan base piled on. The fan base had become a cult. Heretics were censured, mocked, and shouted down. In Terence's defense, I don't believe he welcomed this kind of response. He did not lead the charge. He let others do it for him. I think that in his heart of hearts, Terence would have welcomed honest discussion from some of the presumptions of his ideas, except that to do so would have required that he step back from them, perhaps go into seclusion for a time while he conducted a careful real evaluation. But for that, there was neither time, nor resources, nor incentive. In fact, there was every incentive not to do that. After all, he was on the circuit. If the fans wanted to hear the shtick, the last thing they wanted to hear was Terence announce either that he'd only been kidding and didn't really take any of it very seriously and never had, or that he had been overcome by doubts and needed some time to reconsider and take a harder look at the foundations of the theories. Either one of these responses would have been more honest. Neither would have been well tolerated by his fans. The one would have incurred their hostility on the dawning realization they had been duped, and the other would have severely interrupted cash flow as, as, as the concepts were reworked and retooled. Whatever had driven him in the months and the years following La Chirera to write extended screeds and crabbed microscopic script and to construct the heavily annotated hand-drawn graphs of time had long since left. He was no longer in the grip of the logos. After all, he was on the circuit and there were plenty of adulating fans, many attractive young women, a surfeit of pleasing venues, good money, good food, love and admiration, all in response to what came naturally and effortlessly, the rap, the shtick, what's not to like? Why piss away a good gig? The problem with this is that he couldn't, he didn't really believe much anymore in the shtick or the concepts he purported to represent. He couldn't or wouldn't take psychedelics again to get recharged, perhaps to recover thereby some of the belief and passion. As a result, he became disillusioned with himself and with his fans. He could no longer be honest with either himself or his fans, and this led to a further cognitive dissonance. He began to feel even more like a fraud than ever. He became quite depressed. He became trapped in his own public persona like a caged performer on stage. In response, he gradually lost respect for his fans. In the rereading the passage above, I have to say it comes off of as a bit harsh and critical in a way that is perhaps unfair to Terence or to his fans. Not everyone, not everything that Terence said in his public utterances was nonsense or made up fabrications that sounded good and that had no real logical validity, but not all or even most of Terence's fans were gullible, unquestioning disciples. Terence was at his best when he spoke on topics that were not directly related to the time wave or psychedelics. He was an astute observer and an incisive commentator on contemporary culture. 
He was prescient about many of the social, historical, and technological forces that were creating and are creating our post-millennial world. This is the reason, I think, that the great body of Terence's lectures survive in audio form on the net. And 12 years after his death, people are still listening. Even though they date back to the 80s and mid-90s, they sound as fresh and as timely as they were uttered yesterday. Terence's genius was that he could envision the future that was imminent in current events. He could see that future, and he could articulate it for the rest of us. He may have gotten the details wrong but, and been hobbled by the assumptions of the metaphysics he constructed, but one only has to look around to realize that basically he got it remarkably right. If Terence were resurrected tomorrow, he would be unsurprised by most of the events that have transpired since he left the corporeal realm in 2000. He would have equally incisive observations and speculations about the future and how it is manifesting now and will unfold over the decades of the 21st century. Over the years since Terence died, I have been contacted by many people, most of them young, who tell me they owe Terence for everything they have learned and that the subjects he discussed were more relevant to them than any other part of their educations. This is an enormous compliment to Terence and his talents. He had every right to feel proud of that, and I hope he did. Terence gave people permission to think and to explore consciousness and to entertain funny ideas. Terence, by example, taught it is fun to exercise the imagination. He taught that astonishment and wonder are the forces that drive our efforts to understand ourselves and the marvelous universe we inhabit. No matter how much we think we understand, there is always infinitely more to be understood. One of his favorite quotes from J.B.S. Haldane, who said, My suspicion is that the universe is not only queerer than we suppose, but queerer than we can suppose. Terence reveled in this insight, and it is more true today than Haldane, when Haldane first wrote it in 1927. And I think something came up this morning, just to sort of wrap this up. It sort of ties the, the vision that I had when I wrote the ode together with the, this piece here. Was, and it's something that we've sort of seen and talked about over the years. Um, so in 88 or 89, Terence came up against that, that door, other self, and turned away from the door, heart closed. A lot of things were happening in his life at that time that probably made this exquisitely difficult for him, this one particular mushroom trip. So if one was to think of the mushroom as, as an entity, as an intelligence, especially so engaged with Terence, it was his teacher, it found him in La Chirera. That mushroom, you know, he's a lifetime sufferer of migraine headaches. And you think, my sister died of a very massive brain tumor when she was 31. And so I went through this in the family, this brain tumor the size of a grapefruit kind of a, a thing, which I think Terrence was in that class. But when he went, he, he went to the hospital in Honolulu, the surgeon came out and said, you're going to find this ironic, but look at the shape of this tumor. And it was clearly the shape of a mushroom. So at breakfast this morning, we were having a, a little talk and it sort of popped into our heads that, you know, if the mushroom could not get this man's heart open in the way that 
it is used to doing, which is to throw you into the bardo and into, into the terror until you crack, until you, you, the only place you can reach for is love, which he, he, couldn't, he couldn't grasp in 1988. It was going to do this for him. And the way it did this was it grew inside his mind. And it consumed... Now, understand, we saw him... Something that is, is remarkable. He started doing overtoning, and he performed with Lost at Last. In late 98, we, we saw him in Santa Cruz, and we saw him in San Francisco. You might have seen him those performances. He was so much the elf. When he hit that performer's thing, it was almost like Terrence was sort of completing... That was his eschaton. That was his moment. That was his singularity, those performances. In my mind, when I, when I watch the video that survives of, of that, and he is just completely unbridled. He's, it's not about the head. He's just, he's, he's wailing, he's singing, he's, he's really going. It's not the mind anymore. Well, at that time, this tumor was massive. Can you imagine? He's, he's doing this kind of performance with an incredibly large glioblastoma in his mind. I watched my sister be functional uh, with a very massive tumor. In fact, her voice, her speech center moved from one hemisphere to the other during the growth of the tumor. So the brain is extremely, and this hadn't been seen much in medical science, but this, this, this is an amazing thing that the brain can reorganize itself. So Terence's brain was reorganizing itself around the growth of this mushroom tumor over 10 years. It might have been 20 years. It could have been 30 years. These things can grow. So this man, not only does he have a unique background, his travels were unique, his experiences were unique, his mind was unique because it was dissolving as he was going through life. Boundary dissolution was, going, was happening in Terence McKenna. Why and how? The, the blastoma was consuming every last neuron it could in, in, a, in, a, in a rapid, accelerating pace. And it consumed, I believe, when he, when he was on his deathbed, I think that that blastoma managed to consume the last resistance, the last control structure, the last mind, peace of mind went, and it said, I've got it all. I've dissolved it all. And now the, the real work can, can happen. And it's like any good Hollywood film, it's the last minute, right? <laughs> this happened. So then what happens to Terrence before his last breath was, he says, wait a minute, it's not about thinking and ideas and all this stuff, it's about love. And it opened, he opened, the channel opened. But you can see, you know, the mushroom did the job. It, the teacher finally got through and opened him up. And to some extent, I think, in that way, you know, and then he said, keep breathing for all the rest of us. But that was a tremendous gift. And so, in a sense, for the breaking of the smell, spell of, of McKenna, it's not only that he stopped taking mushrooms, the mushroom took him. So, for all of the people out there listening in, in podcast land, we're trying to break the spell today, but we're also trying to create the release for this man's soul and his spirit. And I think, in some sense, he, he did it himself, but he had seconds to go. You know, the eschaton was upon him. The concrescence was upon him. He did it. He uttered these words. He had this experience, and then he, he passed. But he was unable to do that for his community. So the community kind of went on because of this unfinished business thing. 
And I think this is this became our mission here at Esalen was to help to Terence to reach, give the message that he gave to those around him when he died to the community, but inform you as to what was the true man, not the cartoon. And frankly, I love him more, you know, but I feel he's, as Lorenzo said, and as other people have said, this is a tragic figure, but he's much more interesting. <laughs> but in, in truth, to tell you, you know, the, the stark truth, years ago, uh, I sort of came to this, this sudden realization and, and horror in myself. I know here we were digitizing all these tapes and putting them out, and I had this gut feeling, we're doing something bad here. Because this guy is saying, go and sit and take five to seven grams, you know, high doses, in silent darkness, do this, try to go for the, the gusto, go for the ultimate experience. And I, I sort of had this deep sense of unease that this is really bad advice, this is bad medicine. And that who is out there trying to, to copy and be a Terence McKenna and getting in themselves in serious trouble? And so this is part of the unraveling. It's part of the reeling back in that those people who hear this podcast or this, this presentation should know Terence was shit scared of, of his teacher, of the mushrooms, for 12 years. He didn't go near them. So you can kind of lose your illusions about this now. This stuff is, 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 is serious and should be taken not lightly and not in a cavalier way. It's not a Hollywood feature film. It's not a video game. Terrence himself uh, got the, he's, his rap got the rap down effectively. I've just got a few things and we'll just play them until uh, we run out of time, but this is my sort of other ode to Terence, why we love this man, why this man's so inspirational and has helped so many people break out of isolation. They're living in an isolated place. They think they're weird, and they find this man, and they, it opens up a whole world to them of literature and ideas and alternate thinking and not being alone, the others. And these are just some wonderful uh, tracks that you probably all heard, but they're, in a sense, my love and appreciation to you, Terence, for giving us these for all time. Now technology throws a curve, and the curve is that we live so long that we figure out what a scam this is. We figure out that what you're supposed to work for isn't worth having. We figure out that our politicians are buffoons. We figure out that professional scientists are reputation-building, grab-tailing weasels. We discover that all organizations are corrupted by ambition. Um, you know, you get the picture. We figure it out. Well, then, as intellectuals, and anybody who figures it out is an intellectual, believe me, because they're slinging the programming to push you the other way. So, uh, so then intellectuals, defined as people who figure it out, uh, discover that you are alienated. That's what figuring it out means. It means you understand that the BMW, the Harvard degree, this whatever it is, that this is all baloney and manipulated and hyped and that mostly you have a bunch of clueless people who are figuring out which fork they should use. Uh, 
but this position is presented as alienation and therefore somehow tinged with the potential for pathology. You know, it's a bad thing to be alienating. Now let's speak for a moment in order to fulfill the promise read by in the introduction uh, about psychedelics and what are they doing in this fine situation. Well, what they're doing is, is forcing this maturation process by dissolving boundaries, which is what they do. There is a mind and you can perturb it. I mean, think about, uh, I mean, I don't think you could discover consciousness if you didn't perturb it. Because as Marshall McLuhan said, whoever discovered water, it certainly wasn't a fish. Well, we are fish swimming in consciousness, and yet we know it's there. Well, the reason we know it's there is because if you perturb it, then you see it. And you perturb it uh, by perturbing the engine which generates it, which is the mind-brain system resting behind your eyebrows. This question, you know, is there cause for optimism? The answer is it depends on where you placed your bets. You know, if you placed your bets on uh, uh, male-dominated institutions based on consumer fetishism, propaganda, classism, and materialism, then God help you, you should call your broker. If... On the other hand, uh, you've recognized that a, a lifeboat strategy is involved here, that what is really important is uh, empowering personal experience, backing off from consumer object fetishism, freeing the mind, empowering the imagination, then in that case, I think you can feel pretty good about what is going on. What understanding and imagination in the light of nature argues for is the presence and re-emergence of the awareness of spirit in the world. This is what uh, the so-called and long-heralded paradigm shift is all about. There is a barrier, a place in the process of going to sleep that is like a mercurial edge. It's a river. It's an, a zone of hypnagogia. You often pass through it post-orgasm. It's a place of drifting amoeboid colored after-image lights and then true hallucination uh, images, strange, transcendental or transpersonal. Uh, images. To contact the cosmic giggle, to, to have the flow of casuistry begin to give off synchronistic ripples, white caps in the billows of the coincidental ether, if you will. I have always had a relationship to nature which I pretty much took for granted, but Perhaps it was, uh, it was more intense and somewhat unique than most people's. I grew up uh, in a small town in Colorado. I was very early into being a rock hound, 
and then a butterfly collector. I have no interest in stamps or baseball cards or anything like that. It was always natural objects. And uh, the attraction of tropical butterflies was the, it, the exuberant expanse of color, the affirmation of the uh, patterned richness of the universe that was seen to be thrown out like a spark by these things. And eventually I pursued it quite far and was for some time a professional butterfly collector in uh, tropical Indonesia in a pre-Buddhist incarnation. And uh, this search for iridescence thrown off by nature, seen first in the glint of metallic ore crystals and, uh, and then in the colorful expanse of butterflies and then in tropical fish uh, reached a kind of apotheosis with the discovery of uh, the psychedelic plant hallucinogens where suddenly the color, the flash, the iridescence was not uh, two or three dimensional but it was multidimensional. It was inside one, outside one. It, it was like the ultimate tropical aquarium, the ultimate butterfly cabinet, the ultimate mineral show. And we, if we have any time, there are four pieces from the last interview by Eric Davis, a person of great wisdom that I've come to respect a lot, Alicia Danforth, many of you know, who worked uh, with Charlie Grove as well, actually after Mary C. She was next... Rick, Mary, she recruited for Charlie. She says, uh, look, the time of the guru, whether it be psychedelic or consciousness or whatnot, mostly white male, sitting on a stage prognosticating is over. It's just over. We need to be in a circle and we need to be discussing as a community and building a consensus and building everything jointly. We've got to get away from this other model. So do you want to hear a few more? Okay. Okay, so these are from Eric. Eric Davis uh, went to visit Terrence in November, early December 1999, and he was on heavy medications. He had had, he had, had the, the operation. He had had the gamma knife procedure. And he's just as lucid as ever. He's a little slowed down, but it's amazing. His head was shaved, and he was thin, and he, he had to lift his legs to get upstairs. It was really, really tear, just heartfully sad to see him unable to get up the steps. Um, but um, these are just four pieces from there I thought were... It's, it's really his last word. Well, now that I have all these medical problems with brain and brain function, I have a much greater appreciation for uh, the boundaries of eccentricity. I mean, now I understand. It doesn't take drugs. There are a lot of people running around who are crazy as shithouse owls and uh, are achieving it on the natch. <laughs> and their, their testimony now has to be weighed as well. So uh, this surprises me. I didn't realize that um, 
you know, a malfunctioning brain could uh, leave you functioning enough to report to work and tell your story and presumably write novels and meet deadlines and all these other things, you know, that people do. So, And I don't know how many other people realize this either. Because that's sort of how, I mean, how you feel? Yeah. I mean, I now I live in a world defined by pretty much by prescribed drugs. And uh, my doctors are telling me I have to take this stuff to stay alive, basically. So how many people are living in worlds psychologically defined by in that way? Uh, quite a lot. But you seem to be largely Terrence. They're the full, you know. Uh, well, I recall who I'm supposed to be. So, uh, <laughs> we're not trading that in too lightly. Uh, but in some fundamental sense, do you feel like you're standing on a different ball? I would like to get all these drugs out of my yeah. system, the Depakote and the, and the steroids and all that, because um, it, it, it makes mentally moving on a level surface feel like walking uphill. You know? so, uh, and these are mild drugs, I take. These are not... I, I, you know, what are what about the people who've been diagnosed schizophrenic or bipolar, this or something? I mean, what are these people taking, and what is it making them think about reality? Well, but you, you you've taken uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, haven't you? You mean like Prozac? Yeah. Yeah. The but those are designed to uh, help you out. These other things, all you deal with is side effects. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a different I, thing. I thought you were talking more about, but schizophrenia don't they treat? Don't they treat with all sorts of neurotransmitter uh, modulating drugs, which presumably are to, there to help them out? Well, there to help them out. The way the they may be is. there to help the rest of us out. <laughs> <laughs> To, like, for instance, this drug I take, Depakote, the first thing that it supposedly deals with is mania. Well, I'm taking a drug for mania. I don't have mania. Do I? Did I? Would I? Should I? Will I? Could I? Do I want to? And so forth and so on. <laughs> so. <laughs> you, you, you didn't feel you had any bit of mania in you before? At times I've been accused of mania, but by idiots. <laughs> um, and I, I guess because of the war on drugs, somewhat concealed in all that, is the willingness of the establishment to allow experimentation with drugs, the effect of which on tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people would have social consequences that were maybe unintended or unmanaged. Uh, yeah, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah.
What about the communications that come in from either the extraterrestrial, quote-unquote, or seeming, or the technological world? Well, obviously, it requires discrimination to, to figure out. You can't believe everything you hear. The demons are of many kinds. Some are made of ions, some of mind. The ones of DMT you'll find stutter often and are blind. Just because something can talk doesn't mean it isn't selling you something you may not want to hear. Right. Now, that time in that, in that phrase, you said the ones on DMT can be... But I've also heard you say ketamine there. The ones on ketamine. Have I said that about yeah. ketamine? Yeah. Oh, we need to control me a little more tightly. If you look at you know what we're building with VR, what's just around the corner with these kind of three-dimensional interactive spaces and avatars, and imagine a culture that's more and more based on on that kind of interaction. And, you know, obviously there's a kind of uh, superficial shamanic or imaginative dimension to that. But at the same time, it's it's clear that at least initially and and certainly in many of its guises, it will be driven by the same kind of chintziness, the same sort of crass, tinkly uh, junk that that really drives it. How... Do you you think it's just going to naturally evolve such that a kind of deeper... Uh, shamanic world or at least shamanic analog will emerge in in virtual reality or does it actually require some some real creative work to seed it it requires creative work it requires that the people who build these realities understand how subtle the what they're up against is and not abandon a commitment to to realism you know, the trick to making the shamanic world, virtual world, compelling is to fairly and truly convey it. So you can't cut corners, you can't fake it. So animation and the rules of vermal and all this stuff have to be faithfully executed so that this stuff really does blow people's minds, so that people see, well, the human imagination is large enough to accommodate the human soul. It doesn't leave you feeling like you're wearing too tight a pair of shoes. And that's the, that's the danger is it just becomes kind of a... Formulaic. Too formulaic. Too easy. Not that the software couldn't use some improvement. But uh, I don't want it to become so easy to produce these virtual realities that there's no uh, attention to detail or no sense of accomplishment in doing it. Last one. How has a lifetime of psychedelic use, an adult lifetime, I mean, um, teenage, uh, sort of set you up for uh, facing death? 
Well, I guess it leads you to the idea that uh, things are probably more complicated than you can suppose. Therefore, supposition is not to be trusted. So, in other words, given how weird life has been, why rush to prejudge death? It's bound to be mighty strange. Life was mighty strange. And... uh, I'm curious, you know, I don't think anybody would be curious. I mean, it's an interesting situation to be told that you have a very limited amount of life death because it composes your mind for you wonderfully. And you, you know, start paying attention, asking the questions and... uh, And I have no insight into what it will be, but I suspect it isn't what anybody thinks it is. I mean, the argument that nature has this desire to preserve form is, I think, self-evident on enormous scales of space and time and very local scales of space and time. So why fight it? It must be that uh, that the that somehow matter is spiritualizing itself or mathematizing itself or somehow right becoming virtual forms. So and what psychedelics show is that the world is full of surprises. I mean, I consider psychedelics a constant and verifiable miracle. The fact that that can happen to your mind. So it means all kinds of things are possible. Uh, Nothing is to be assumed or prejudged, given A, biology, B, psychedelics and culture. Probably that's a long enough list, but those two things alone secure the weirdness of being sufficiently. Thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, uh, there's, of course, a great deal to say about what, uh, for you, may be some new information about our beloved bard, McKenna. But I think that for now, we have a lot of information to absorb and new things to think about. And actually, we're going to have several different ways and places to talk about how or if this news changes your opinion of Terence McKenna. For me, uh, I was actually relieved to hear that I wasn't a personal psychedelic failure because I wasn't taking five dried grams of mushrooms in silent darkness every weekend. Interestingly, uh, that was also the first response of almost everyone in our workshop as well. And uh, next, I think we mainly all felt a deep sadness for the difficult path that dear Terrence was on for the last decade or so of his life, and in no small measure because of the pressure we all put on him to uh, entertain us with his wonderful stories. But before I say much more, I would first like to hear what you think about all of this. And uh, there are a couple ways you can do so. Of course, uh, I'd like to see a long discussion thread in the comments section of the program notes for today's podcast. And as you know, you can get to them via psychedelicsalon.us. 
Also, uh, our friends at Reality Sandwich will be doing a short piece on this story, and their site will also be a good place for discussion. Also, if you uh, want to start a thread on my Facebook page under the announcement of this podcast, well, that would be another place where we can begin to share this information and uh, see how we all feel about it. Now, uh, I do have some more news for you as well. On Sunday morning of our workshop, one of the Esalen staff members who had been attending our gathering gave me a real treasure. From the time Terrence McKenna first came to Esalen, up through his final appearance there, Another one of the Esalen residents, Paul Herbert, recorded every one of Terence's talks and workshop there. Before Paul died, he gifted those tapes to Bill Herr, who was in our workshop, and Bill has loaned those tapes to me, over 160 of them, and I've begun the process of digitizing them before returning them to Bill. And did I mention that Bill has also given me permission to play them all here in the salon? <laughs> now, uh, there's a lot more to say about this, but the headline for now is that I've decided to podcast each of them in the date order in which they were given. And I'll try to keep interspersing a few non-McKenna talks every once in a while, but for the next year or so, I'm afraid that uh, those fellow saloners who already think that I played too many of uh, Terrence's lectures... Well, I'm sorry, but besides the fact that I want to listen to them all in order now myself, I also feel a strange sense of responsibility to create as complete an audio archive as possible to honor not just Terrence McKenna, but also the late Paul Herbert as well. And uh, you'll be hearing more about Paul as I begin playing the tapes from his collection. So, to the young man who recently wrote to say that the Salon already had enough McKenna, Leary, and the Occupy movement, well, it looks like you may have to find another podcast to keep you company because, for some strange reason, I now feel a sort of an obligation or a duty to podcast a more organized and definitive look into the mind of the gifted, mesmerizing, and very human being who is called Terrence McKenna. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.